Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of you who are in the room and those who are watching online, and thank you again for sharing these services with family and friends. It's through your sharing that our church has grown exponentially through our online outreach. We're reaching thousands and thousands of people we would not otherwise be reaching without you. And so thank you for doing that. I, uh, we came to the series better because we felt like our country, our church, Uh, Our community just needs better news. I mean, just everywhere you look, there's so much negativity going on. And you look into the Word of God, and God promises better things, better days, better news. This morning, I want to talk to you for a little while on this idea we have a better high priest. Jesus is better. He's the best person you'll ever know, the best person you could ever meet. On your darkest day, he's there. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us. And what I found in my life, and I'm sure you found this in yours as well, everyone goes through something. We live life in seasons, we go through life with cycles, we have life uh, with good days and bad days and happy days and sad days, and everyone has those hard times. And what I've found in the difficult times of life and the hard times of life, I found that it has an ability to change us. Uh, You've heard the old expression, you become bitter or better through the experiences of life. And that's so true. And so many things you and I are not in control over, but I can tell you what we are in control of, and that is how we get through the things that we go through. I've learned in my life, perhaps you would agree with me on this, there are some experiences you go through in life you never get over. You just don't get over it. Somebody says, well, how are you doing? Are you, are you, are you getting over it? And if you're honest, you say no. No, there's, there's some things you just never get over. The emotion is just right there under the surface. And it's just, you don't get over it. But what I'm finding out is there's experiences of life you learn to get through. You learn to get through. You put a foot in front of the other. You take it a day at a time, step at a time. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God gives you what you need when you need it, not before. And so you learn to depend on him and you learn to lean on him and you understand that my response and my reaction to the things that I'm experiencing will ultimately determine the outcome. So that's so important. And when the writer of Hebrews was writing about better things, he was writing to people not unlike you and I who were going through some difficult struggles. And sadly, many of them were turning away. Uh, I've said before, trouble either draws you closer to God or drives you away from God. And so these people in Hebrews, these people in that first century early church, many of them were turning away. Some of the Gentile believers who did not have any type of religious underpinning were just walking away. They were just forsaking their faith and they were just going back to doing the things as we talked last weekend that they did before they ever met Jesus. And then you had these Jewish Christians who were turning and going back into the religious system. They had found some comfort there. They had found some solace there by going back into the religious rituals that they had just come out of. And so the writer of Hebrews is using this as a way to try to challenge them not to turn away, not to run away, but to come back to Jesus, embrace him, uh, lean into him, look to him. And so he uses this beautiful expression and he uses his descriptive word to talk about our Lord Jesus. He says he's a priest. He's a priest. Well, anyone with a religious background understood the role of a priest. Uh, 
In fact, the role of the priest had a powerful role in the life of the uh, of, uh, scriptures and the lives of God's people when you look way back in the Old Testament day. In fact, I can trace the sacrificial system and the role of a priest back to the garden. In fact, when Adam and Eve, remember when sin entered the picture, uh, one of the first things that they did whenever uh, 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 they were coming to terms with how sin had separated them from God is they had received this idea, Genesis 3.15, that one day through the seed of the woman, the Messiah would come. They understood that would be a miraculous thing to happen. And yet you see the promise of the Messiah, you see the promise going all the way back to the garden. It is the message of the gospel. I've shared this with you before, but their firstborn child was Cain. And the name Cain in Hebrew means acquisition, or he is here. In other words, Adam and Eve believed so strongly that the Messiah would come to bring them back into relationship and fellowship with God that they thought their firstborn son might be him. He's here, acquisition. What does that speak of? It speaks of their faith. Sometimes people look at the people of the Old Testament and they misunderstand the sacrificial system and they misunderstand the role of the law and they think people in the Old Testament were saved differently than the people in the New Testament and even in our day. I've heard people say, well, there was one way to come to Jesus in the Old Testament, another way to come to Jesus in the New Testament. It's just not true. The gospel was seen in types and the gospel was seen in symbols and the gospel was seen uh, through different ways in the Old Testament, but there's always and forever only been one way to God. Jesus said it in John 14, six, I am the way, not one of many. I am the truth, not your truth, my truth. I am the life, there's no life outside of the Father. And so Jesus is that way to God. So when you look at Hebrews 11, here's what it says. It says, all those Old Testament saints died in faith, and here's the phrase, not receiving the promise. The promise of what? The promise of the Messiah. They died in faith, not receiving the promise, but they believed that he would one day come. So put this together. People in the Old Testament were saved by faith, looking forward to the day that Jesus would come and would go to the cross and die. You and I are saved by faith this very same way, looking back at the cross, believing one day Jesus did come and that he did die. So I'm saying there's only ever, only forever been one way. But the sacrificial system was the way of God preaching the gospel even in the Old Testament. And so uh, Job, probably the oldest book of the Bible, Job was a priest over his house. So before you had the institution of priesthood, you, have, you had parents who were serving as priests for their household, serving as priests for their children. So there was a sacrificial system that can be communicated all the way back into the very earliest days of biblical record. In fact, the very first priest that we know of is a man who's mysterious, but by the name of Melchizedek. And you see him in Genesis chapter 14. And the Bible says concerning Melchizedek that Abraham, Father Abraham, offered Melchizedek his tithes. So before the Levi uh, uh, tribe ever started producing the priest and the Aaronic priesthood was ever established under Moses, before all of that happened, you had a priest back there called Melchizedek. What's my point? My point is God has always used priests throughout the Old Testament to be that mediator between a fallen man and a holy God. And the role of a priest was to offer a sacrifice which pointed to the cross. And so there was a priesthood in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system in the Old Testament, and it was still in play all the way up to the coming of Jesus. 
In fact, many uh, believe that uh, uh, those uh, Christian Jews who had turned from that sacrificial system to embrace the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross, that the reason they were going back into that sacrificial system was the struggle they were having to get past their religion to embrace the new relationship they had found in Jesus. So I don't want you to miss this because this is important. The sacrificial system had a function. The role of the priest was significant in the lives of people. Uh, the Latin for priest is pontifex. We get the idea of bridge builder. We get the idea of mediator. Uh, we get the idea of advocate. If you go to Israel today, uh, many lawyers will have on their sign, advocate. Advocate means someone to represent you. And so all of these are attributed to the priesthood and all of these are now attributed to Jesus. And so you have this sacrificial system offering the sacrifice the priest would for the sins of the people and then those sins would uh, be rolled forward for another year. And when that year came around, you would bring the best of the flocks and the best of your herds, you'd bring those into the tabernacle and you would offer them as an offering, as a sacrificial offering and the priest would then take them and sacrifice them. He would go through one veil to enter the outer court of that tabernacle structure and there on the brazen altar, he would offer a sacrifice, move from the sacrifice to the brazen laver, there he would wash himself. He would enter the second veil and in the inner court, there would be the table of showbread, the altar of incense and the lampstand. And then he would move through the third veil. And in the third veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat, indicating the fact that atonement for sin has been made through the shedding of blood of that sacrifice. All of that, if you're tracking with me, was a picture of the coming of the Messiah who would be God's perfect sacrifice, whose shedding of his blood on the cross would make an atonement for sin. And that was a beautiful picture of the gospel throughout all of the sacrificial system. So when the writer of Hebrews is writing with that backdrop, you better understand uh, what he means by what he says. And if you look with me in Hebrews four, let's take this apart and think about it. Hebrews four, look at verse, verse 14. Sing then based on kind of what I've just shared with you in the context of the story, seeing then, note the expression, we have a great high priest. Don't let me stop long enough to say, that's the first time in all the Bible a high priest has been referred to as being great. Aaron was a high priest. There were many high priests in the Bible. Melchizedek, as I said a moment ago, but none of those men, none of those in the priesthood were ever referred to as great. And the point the writer is making is Jesus stands in contradistinction to all of the other priests who have ever lived. This is a better priest. He is a great high priest. And notice how he describes him. He's one who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Get that imagery, passing through the heavens. What did the high, what did the high priest do? He passed through the veil into the outer court. He passed through a veil into the inner court. He passed through a veil into the holiest of holies. But the Bible here says Jesus, unlike the earthly priest, he didn't pass through these veils in a tabernacle somewhere. He passed through the heavens into the very presence of God, something that no other priest had ever done. And so he says, this priest that we have is Jesus, the son of God. Now understand, every other priest had been servants of God. Jesus is the son of God. You see the distinction as he draws between this great contrast and comparison between the priest that they've known and the priest that they now know, who is Jesus Christ. And notice what he says, let us hold fast our confession. Remember, he's writing to people turning. He's writing to people in trouble. 
What is he saying? Loosely translated, hang in there, baby. <laughs> hang on. We're gonna get through this. You're gonna be okay. If God dropped into our vernacular, he would say, I got you and I got this. Hold on. Don't give in, don't give up, don't give out, don't turn back, don't turn away. If you run anywhere, run to Jesus. If you fall anywhere, fall at his feet. Hold fast to our confession. What is confession? Agreement. The word confess means to agree. In other words, when you receive Jesus as your savior, you came into agreement. Here's what you said in receiving him. Lord, I'm a sinner and you're the savior. And with all that I know about me, I trust all that I know about you. Come into my life, forgive my sin. You confessed, you agreed, and God has received you. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, with what you're going through, you're confused. What you're going through, you're broken. What you're going through, you're crushed. And the tendency is to turn away and for some to turn back. He's saying, hold on. Just hold on to our confession. And look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Think about that. Now, I think it's interesting that he said that because some of them probably had high priests who did not sympathize. Have you ever shared your problems with somebody and after you get in the middle of it, you can look and they look glazed over and their mind's drifting and their eyes are looking somewhere else and you're wondering to yourself, why am I saying this to this person? They clearly don't care. <laughs> I mean, they clearly are not connected to me. And there are priests and there are people in professions that should be compassionate professions and compassionate people who sometimes come off as though they don't care. So he uses the word sympathize to simply draw another contrast and say some of you have had priests and you've had people in your life who did not handle you with sympathy. They handled you harshly. And he noticed what he says. He says, we don't have that kind of priest who cannot sympathize, notice it now, with our weaknesses. He doesn't excuse our weaknesses, but he sympathizes with them. Isn't it great to know that we have a high priest that we can turn to? We have a mediator that stands between us and God. We have a bridge builder. We have an advocate that we can turn to when we are weak, who has sympathy for us who says to us, child, I understand. Some of you have, have maybe had a parent like that. Moms are really good at that. Not that us dads can't offer sympathy, but moms are really good. I mean, when you got hurt as a kid, if you can get to mama, mama will make it a little better. You get to dad, he might tell you, throw a little dirt on it, you'll be okay. I remember I was helping my dad one time, I had a horse get in the backyard, we had a little cyclone fence, and that horse had bent the top rail of that cyclone fence, made my dad mad. Somebody, probably my brother, didn't lock the back gate so the horse got into the backyard, bent the fence. So my dad's out there and he's frustrated. He thinks I did it, pretty sure I didn't, but he thinks I did. So he's mad that he's having to fix the fence. He's mad that I'm standing there trying to help him fence the, fix the fence. So he takes that pipe that was bent and he just kind of bends it the other way and he's gonna try to pull that bend out and straighten it. So I'm sitting there watching him. And all of a sudden, the end of that pipe came out of that little socket on the fence post and hit me right in the mouth. Blood went everywhere. You know what my dad looked at me with all the compassion? You know what he said to me? I never will forget this. He said, well, get your nose in it next time, son. <laughs> get your nose in it next time, son. How compassionate. So what I did is I ran in the house and my mother goes, son, what happened? Sympathy, right? What happened? I said, dad hit me in the face with a pipe. <laughs> There you go. The point I'm making is, 
One was a little better at sympathy than the other. And he's just saying, man, when you're weak, when your heart is heavy and your heart is broken, you've got a high priest you can go through that says, come here, let me, let me make it better. Let me sympathize with you. I know what you're going through. Notice why. Because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. You remember the famous temptation of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew when the devil comes to him. He had been in a 40-day fast and he was hungry. And the devil tempts him by saying, command these stones that they may be made bread. Jesus was vulnerable because he was hungry and in his hunger he was weak. And the devil was tempting him to take the power that he had and use the power that he had for personal gain. And Jesus responds to him and says, it is written you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Then the devil says to him, well, I'll take you up on this high temple and you cast yourself off the temple and angels will be there and they'll catch you and it'll be a wonderful way. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then the devil says to him, if you'll bow before me, I'll give you everything. You can have this world will bow before you. I'll give everything to you. By the way, uh, the devil, uh, Jesus didn't refute that. He didn't say you don't have the power to do that. Remember, he's the prince and power of the air. He didn't say you don't have the power to do it. Jesus recognized the devil could deliver on that promise. So how does he respond? You should not tempt the Lord your God. What's the point? The point is he was tempted. The Bible says in all points as we are. How does the devil tempt us? Read 1 John 2, 15. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. What were the three temptations on the Mount of Transfiguration? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's why the writer says our our Savior can relate to the temptations that you and I experience. Look at verse 16. So let us therefore, remember when you see the word therefore in the Bible, look and see what it's there for. It connects what he's just said with what he's about to say. He said, because we've got this kind of high priest, notice what he says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. I love that. Just come on in. You know what happens when you're weak? Sometimes the tendency isn't to go boldly into the throne of grace. If your weakness is brought upon by something you've done, there's guilt that's associated with that. And sometimes with our guilt, the tendency is to distance ourselves from God. Remember, turns you toward or turns you away. And so finally, when you realize that our high priest loves us, even in our weakness, he still loves us. Even when we're tempted, he understands us. And because we know that, all of a sudden we have that epiphany and we say, well, I'm gonna get back to him. I'm gonna get back into fellowship with God. And he says, yes. And when you come, come boldly, boldly. Boldly is how your kids approach you, boldly. Not with timidity, they don't, they don't go, well, kids just come in the room. They don't knock. You can be on the phone, they'll interrupt you. Mama, 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 right? Until you, it doesn't matter. Dad, 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 hey dad, hey dad, dad, dad. They, what, what do they do? They're coming boldly. Why? Because you love them, they love you. You got this thing going on. They know there's nothing much that they could do. In fact, they know there's nothing they could do that you would not love them in spite of it <laughs> and regardless of it. And it, that relationship brings about boldness. So he's saying when you're weak and you're tempted and you've made mistakes and you're tempted to walk away, don't do that. Instead, no, you have a high priest, you have a, uh, you have a go-between, you have an advocate, you have a mediator, you have a pontifex who stands between you and God. Go boldly, and I love how he said this, to the throne of grace. Did you get this? He didn't say the throne of judgment. 
Because sometimes when we're weak and we've been tempted and we've walked away, we see God is standing before a throne of judgment. Come in here so I can beat the sin out of you. Right? Now understand, there is a throne of judgment. It's called the great white judgment throne. But that'll be in the last day. And you know what that's reserved for? That's reserved for people who've rejected Jesus, who don't want to be in his presence. Ultimately, they'll stand before that throne to hear as Matthew 7 described, our Lord say, depart from me, those of you who've worked deceit. I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you and you blew it. He didn't say, I, I knew you and uh, I just dropped you. He said, I, I never knew you. We were never in a relationship. So depart from me. Now that's the great white throne judgment. But God doesn't judge his kids. I mentioned it last week. One of the services, I said, God doesn't go Old Testament on his kids. You, you don't judge your kids. You don't smite them hip and thigh. <laughs> you discipline your kids. There's a big old difference. Discipline is course correction. Discipline is what you do with a child that you know if they don't change that behavior, it's gonna be up to the teacher, and if that doesn't work, it's gonna be up to a law enforcement officer, and if that doesn't work, you know, wow, it may be up to a, a guard in a jail somewhere at some point. So we know we have to start correcting them while they're young. You don't wanna wait 16 years and 100 pounds too late. So you start this course correction, you're not judging them, you're disciplining them. That's a totally different thing. You're saying I want a different outcome than what I'm seeing in you. And right now I'm bigger than you. So I can impose this on you. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> and, and hopefully, prayerfully, the outcome will be Proverbs 22, six, train up the child in the way they shall go and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. So I'm just suggesting to your heart that when God deals with his kids, it's not judgment, it's mercy and it's grace. So he's saying what you find when you come back to him is you find that you can walk boldly and you come boldly to the throne. You come boldly to the throne of grace. And what do you get when you get there? Look at this. You find mercy and grace. When do you get it? You get help in the time of need. God will give you what you need when you need it. Not before, but when. And he's saying here, you have a great high priest who loves you. I wanna give you a quick, three quick takeaways and we'll go home. Number one, he's greater in his position. Jesus, our great high priest, is greater in his position. Get this, remember, he passed through the heavens into the presence of God, through the heavens. Remember when Paul had that great vision in, in 2 Corinthians 12? He said, I was caught up into the third heaven. Third heaven. What's the phrasing here? Through the heavens. So I know based on the biblical record, there are three different types of heaven. There's the heaven where the birds fly. There's the heavens where the planets, where the stars and the moon reside. And there's the third heaven. That's the heaven where our loved ones reside. It's the presence of God. And Jesus did what no other high priest had ever been able to do. He didn't just go through the veils into the holiest of holies. He passed through the heavens, the Bible says, into the very presence of God. So he's greater in his position. Secondly, he's greater in his perfection. He's Jesus, the son of God. Perfect in every way. Those Old Testament priests weren't perfect. The New Testament priests weren't perfect. Read Hebrews chapter five. Before they could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins. 
No human being has ever lived that has been perfect in any way. David said in sin, my mother conceived me. Uh, Solomon said it's as easy to sin as the sparks of a fire it is to fly upward. Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He went on to say there is none righteous, no, not one. But when Jesus came born of a virgin, when Jesus stepped on the scene, and John saw him and said, behold, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. The Bible says he did no sin. The Bible said he knew no sin. When Jesus was brought before Pilate and they were accusing him of claiming to be uh, God and he was brought before Pilate, uh, Pilate got the best investigators in the world, the then known world. Remember, uh, Rome was the, the most powerful empire of the then known world. He had the best prosecutors, he had the best investigators of the then known world go out, investigate everything they could about Jesus. They went back to daycare. <laughs> Those of you who had baby Jesus, anything bad about baby Jesus? Anybody got a bad word about baby Jesus? They went to his elementary school. Any of you teachers have a bad thing to say about little boy Jesus? Did little boy Jesus ever do anything bad? How about you middle school teachers? You have anything bad to say about middle school Jesus? How about you coaches that coach Jesus? Anything bad about Jesus? How did he treat his friends? How did he treat kids? Did he ever bully anybody? What about baby Jesus? What about little boy Jesus? What about teenager Jesus? What about young man Jesus? Well, we know Jesus didn't enter public ministry till he was around 30 years of age. So we uh, assume that he was probably a businessman knowing his father was a carpenter. We believe Joseph must have died because there's no mention of him after Jesus is about 12 years of age. So we kind of assume that Jesus probably took over the business as a carpenter. So he was a tradesman, he was a businessman. And so Jesus did business with people all the time. And so they went to them and said, what about, what about Jesus? What about the businessman Jesus? What about the neighbor Jesus? What about the friend Jesus? Looking for anything they could find on him. And you read the record, the report is brought back to Pilate who stands before the crowd and says, I find no fault in him. Can you imagine if the top investigators of our world started looking at us? They'd, they'd pick us up before breakfast. <laughs> I mean, there, there is no way any of us could pass that kind of scrutiny and there's no way that someone in our background couldn't point at something that we have done, said, did, responded, failed to respond, yet Jesus was, what am I saying? He's a greater high priest. The other priests were imperfect. Jesus was sinless. Greater in his position through the heavens to the presence of God. Greater in his perfection, the sinless son of God, and I'm done with this, greater in his provision. What does he offer? Mercy and grace. Mercy is you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is you do get what you don't deserve. <laughs> and he offers both, mercy and grace. 1903, 1903, Booth Tucker preached in the Salvation Army. He was a part of the Booth family who were the founders of the Salvation Army. So Booth in 1903 preaches in this huge convocation in Chicago at the Salvation Army. And he preached a message similar to what I've tried to do today where he talked about how Jesus can sympathize, how Jesus' heart is moved toward the experiences that we go through in life. So he preached about the fact we have a sympathizing, a sympathetic savior who understands the depths of our grief, our sorrow, and our pain. 
After his message was over, a man approached him and he said, I wanna take issue with your message today. He said, if you had a wife like I did who died and your children were heartbroken, I don't know that you would stand up in front of those people and preach about the sympathy of Jesus if you've gone through what I've been through. He thought about that. He thought about, I don't know that I could relate to that and I don't know if I went through what he's gone through, if I would have that opinion of Jesus. It bothered him. And tragically, within two weeks, Booth Tucker's wife died in a train wreck. They brought her back to Chicago, the same building where he had preached, the same building where this man had encountered him, this man who had lost his wife, the mother of his children. And I wanna quote for you what Booth Tucker said over the casket of his wife in her memorial service. Here's what he said. The other day when I was here, a man said that I could not say Christ was sufficient or sympathetic if my wife were dead and my children were crying for their mother. He said, if that man is here, I would tell him Christ is sufficient. He's sympathetic. Even though my heart is crushed and it's broken, my heart still has a song. Christ put it there. He said, if that man is here, I would tell him that though my wife is gone, Jesus speaks comfort to me today. He concluded her service and that man approached him. He was in that memorial service. Booth Tucker said they embraced at the casket of his wife he knelt beside that casket and Booth Tucker introduced him to Jesus. Booth Tucker didn't, that's not true because Booth Tucker said it. He said it because it's true. After hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals, I've gone through an experience in my life that's changed me. So I can tell you and those watching online from experience, Jesus is sympathetic. He's sufficient. He'll come into your world when it's shattered and broken. He will not fail you. He has not failed me. If you don't know him, I highly recommend him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends today, those who do not know you, that this might be that moment when they humble their heart and they just simply pray, Lord, with all that I know about me, I trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. I need you in my life. For others, Lord, who may be struggling today and the temptation is to turn away, Father, encourage them to hold fast to their confession, to come boldly to the throne of grace. And there, they'll receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.